Hey everybody, it's James Tiley and Johnny Fry, and we are back. Another Digital Bytes newsletter for another podcast. And as always, Johnny brings back some... Everybody, listen, everybody's from Britain. No Americans over here ever. We have Jana Pache, who's sweet. She's very nice, I already know. But she's from the Digital Pound Foundation. Not the dollar, not the nickel, or I don't even... Do you guys have nickels? But the digital pound, I'm learning all about money everywhere but here. So, Johnny, bring her on. For goodness sake, James. That, thank you very much indeed. And, and Jana, welcome to the Digital Bite Show. Uh, delighted to have you um, here with us today. And um, before we get into your article, you've written an interesting article on policy drivers for a retail central bank digital currency. But before we get stuck into that, it'd be great for the listeners just to know a little bit more about your background. And perhaps you can just... Um, fill us in on what the Digital Pound Foundation is, and may- maybe if you have any plans to set up a, a, I don't know, a dollar foundation to make James happy. Um, sure. Thank you, Johnny and James. Uh, it's a genuine pleasure to be here with you today, and I'm really looking forward to this session. Um, not, least not as much because... as us, Jenna. <laughs> Let's see where it goes. Um, so in terms of my personal background, um, my, my background has nothing to do with payments or digital currency um, or anything like that. It's actually very boringly um, capital markets and consulting in market structure, regulatory strategy and financial innovation, um, which in, to a large extent translates to setting up trading venues and exchanges and things like that, interspersed with periods of time spent um, analyzing the impact of regulations of various banks' businesses, um, culminating in Brexit, which made me, um, you know, turn to look at other interesting things, including digital assets. Um, I am now, um, while I still do my consulting work, also um, one of the people behind the Digital Pound Foundation um, and currently an executive director and policy lead for the DPF. Um, The Digital Pound Foundation was launched in 2021. Um, We're a not-for-profit corporate membership organization that advocates for the introduction of a well-designed digital pound in both publicly and privately issued forms. Um, So that's CBDC, as well as things like stable coins and tokenized deposits and tokenized e-money and things like that. Um, And we also um, advocate for an effective, diverse, and competitive ecosystem for all these new forms of digital money in the UK. So we're not entirely pro-public, pro-private. We see a future in which all these new forms of digital money coexist, um, hopefully happily and peacefully together at some point, um, to provide the greatest um, ultimate benefit for consumers, for society, for end users, etc. Blimey. That's, so you're not exactly going to be unbiased then. It sounds like you love stable coins and central bank digital currencies. I'm really interested in what so the Bank of England refers to these as new forms of digital money. And I am personally really interested in them. I'm really interested in the potential for them um, to underpin like wider change in um, wider ch- transformation and the kind of next stage of digital evolution and financial services, um, as well as how they can underpin the transition to a digital economy as well. Okay, well, I must admit, as you know, well know, I, I I do believe that we are going to see this happen sooner rather than later, and I think it's a good thing because it's just another choice. But 
that that's that's my opinion for what it's worth. But what are some of these policy drivers then, uh, and the motivations, if you like, Jana, behind some of the because a lot of countries are doing. It's not just one or two countries. We've got a lot of countries looking at um, sort of bringing out some sort of central bank digital currency or stable coins. It's almost every day we find another company announcing it. Sure. Um, well, I think that there's often a perception that. Central bank digital currencies are all about um, central bank control. Um, or also, they're only necessary if you want to really mo- modernize your kind of payment systems. And in economies like the UK, in jurisdictions like the UK or um, you know the EU, I'm not going to say the US because the US does not necessarily have the most coherent and cohesive payments infrastructure but you know oh blimey in, that's, that's one below the belt for james i'm sure he's going to come back to in, on that one. i keep saying like, listen <laughs> we don't do anything we just wait for you guys to tell us what to do checkbooks out there though james aren't you you've you probably got pigeons that are carrying sort of dollar dollar bills strapped to the legs or something What's going to I happen mean, is when gonna... you take the federal versus state system, it's not far off, really. But you know, we can come back to that. We'll come back to <laughs> dumping our paper wallets into uh, that Boston Harbor and just restart a whole a CBDC party. Yeah, and we could all drink tea instead of arguing about it. Um, Sorry, so Janet. We're throwing back you up, throwing to the you question. Up. That's okay. I am not thrown off. I'm still very much on track. Um, so, yeah, I think there's often a question in jurisdictions like the UK and the EU where we've got, you know, pretty good payments architecture. We've got, um, you know, pretty sophisticated uh, payments methods and things like that and systems. Um, why do we need central bank digital currency? What does it give us that we don't have already? And I think when we look at the policy drivers, the wider policy drivers for CBDC, they're not generally just about improving payments infrastructure. So different jurisdictions have different motivations for introducing central bank digital currencies. Um, so like the Bahamas, for example, when they introduced their sand dollar, um, one of their primary drivers was to address the logistical issues that are involved in distributing cash to ATMs across, I think, you know, 700 islands or so, especially during a pandemic. So having another means of public access to public money was really important to them. Um, for other jurisdictions like Nigeria and Inera, financial inclusion is a driver. Um, Sweden has had a massive decline in cash usage and the e-corona project represents the government wanting to maintain public access to public money in a digital native format and as a replacement to cash. Um, but there are other things as well. So there can, there can be like more overtly geopolitical reasons for a jurisdiction to introduce a CBDC. Um, Cambodia's Bakong system, which is arguably more of a synthetic CBDC, but let's not get too technical, um, has an explicit objective of strengthening the local currency and kind of de-dollarizing the economy because Cambodia has a very heavily dollarized economy. And so they want a greater control over their currency and their monetary policy and things like that. And so this was one means of um, enabling that. The EU's got its own drivers around greater integration and kind of security and stability and things like that. Um, and you know, strengthening the EU strategic 
autonomy um, and efficiencies. Um, and, and all of these are great drivers. None of them are particularly that applicable, again, to a jurisdiction like the UK. So why in the UK do we need a CBDC? Um, and the answer actually was presented quite nicely by the Bank of England and HM Treasury's recent consultation on the digital pound, um, which I can go into if you like. Yeah, yeah um, please do. Why, why, okay. In summary, why, so in summary then, why do we need in the UK, I know there's a million people in the UK who don't have a bank account, but what why do we need in the UK? So there's often a line of argument from, you know, I, I wouldn't say everyone in the private sector. I think, you know, the, the, the private sector is, is a vast thing. It has many different constituents, all the way from commercial banks of various sizes and shapes um, through to, you know, fintechs and end user type businesses and things like that, various corporates. Um, there's often an argument from the banking sector, and we saw this very clearly actually in, I think, 2020, the American Bankers Association wrote a letter to the Fed saying, you don't need to issue a CBDC ever. We've got this. We see the need for digital native forms of money, but we can do it all by ourselves and you don't need to worry about this. Um, and that's a common argument. It's like, you know, commercial banks can issue tokenized deposits and things like that that provide the benefits of digital native money, but don't need a central bank to issue it. So why do we need a CBDC? And the nice thing about this um, consultation paper on the digital pound was that the Bank of England really tackled that head on and up front. And it went straight in there and it said, you know, all other factors aside, all other arguments um, for, you know, the benefits, use cases, utility of um, a, a CBDC digital pound. The reason that we have public money in the first place, and here we distinguish between um, public money, which represents a liability against uh, the central bank, so that is cash at the moment, versus um, private money, which exists mainly in the form of commercial bank deposits at the moment, but could also in the future encompass different types of stable coins, for example. Um, the main reason that, you know, we have public money at the moment is because at the end of the day, it is a fundamental means of ensuring public trust in the financial system and the commercial banking system. So, in order to unpack this, we need to look at what happens. So if I take a hundred pounds of cash that I've had under my mattress for a while and I walk into a bank and I say, may I deposit this in my bank account, assuming I can find a bank branch. Um, but you know, let's, let's could move past that. Could yeah. Could, that could be the trickiest bit. And I deposit my hundred pounds of cash into my bank account. Now a lot of people think that that £100, they still own that £100. It's sitting there in their bank account. It's not. They have basically given their £100 to the bank. What they now have is a liability against a commercial bank. This is a liability that might be backed by about 10% of actual cash reserves, um, some loans that the bank has made, some other types of reserve assets, some prudential regulation, um, some general trust and love and fuzzy warm feelings and confidence in the system. 
but it's not a hundred pounds in cash anymore. It is a liability against the commercial bank and things can go wrong with the commercial bank. So the commercial bank, you know, could become insolvent. Um, it could go bust. Um, yes, there's a financial services compensation scheme that protects our deposits to a certain extent, but ultimately that only covers them up to a certain amount. Now, the fact that I can then go off again and find an ATM, and again, this might be a problem in certain parts of the UK, um, and withdraw my £100 from the bank account into cash, again, transforming it into the direct central bank liability that I can hold in my hand. In theory, it gives me confidence. I may not fully realise it, but it gives me confidence that, you know, I can switch between that ephemeral thing in the bank account to cold, hard cash that no one can deny. And that's the trust that the Bank of England sees cash playing a role in maintaining within the financial system. So in a time of declining cash usage, we the argument goes, we need a digital native alternative that provide that fulfills the same function as cash does at the moment in terms of continued public access to a publicly issued direct liability, direct claim on the central bank, as well as all the other cool things you can do with it. But this is like the UK driver. And then the second UK driver as well is the potential role that it can play as a platform for innovation and as providing a kind of means of, you know, a platform for infrastructure for future financial services and fintech innovation in the UK. Okay, and and just sticking with the UK, and sorry, listeners, I know you're you're all over the world, but just from the UK perspective, um, or, or let, let's make it wider. Let's look at typically. Do you do you think we'll see a situation whereby we'll have central bank digital currencies and stable coins operating alongside each other? Then I think so. I mean, I think stable coins are a very broad bucket of things at the moment, and we're trying to move away from calling them only stable coins as i mentioned we now have you know i think in the early days when what was then facebook introduced the concept of what was then libra calling these things that weren't the same as any money that we'd seen before stable coins kind of made sense Um, but now there are so many different variants there's um the kind of what we think of as the traditional stable coins like um circles usdc or tethers um, USDT. There's, you know, the algorithmic stable coins like Terra and UST. There, well, what was Terra and UST? Um, there's tokenized deposits, which are basically the tokenized, the digitized form of commercial bank money, and represent a different thing entirely to stable coins. There's tokenized e-money as well, um, and. We see a future in which just as these things coexist today um, in their non-digital native forms, they're going to coexist in the future as well. And they might have different, they might occupy different niches in the ecosystem. They might have different utilities that they fulfill or different functionalities that they offer. Some might be programmable. Some might, I don't know, have reward schemes attached or something like that. If it's like an Amazon coin or something. Um, But there's... It's not as though a CBDC will be introduced and it will take over everything, nor is it as though there will be a dominant form of private issuance. 
Um, there'll probably be a lot of things and there'll be a big settling down period. We may see a few dominant ones emerge, but it should be a fairly competitive landscape. Okay. Okay. And and what about international expansions? Do you, do you think there's an opportunity for Digital Pound Foundation to, to go international and, and have a, a digital dollar foundation to keep James happy? Well, James, um, there is actually a digital dollar project already. And the Digital Pound Foundation was actually inspired by um, the the Digital Dollar Project in the US. There's also a Digital Euro Association as well. So we collaborate with both of these organizations um, to kind of share our learnings and experience and knowledge because Although we're, uh, you know, we focus our advocacy in the UK, as Johnny alluded to, we, um, you know, some of these, these, this ecosystem is going to ultimately be global. It's going to ultimately potentially involve forms of money that cross borders as well. Um, And so having all these very siloed conversations is not helpful. We need to join up the ecosystem across different jurisdictions and have those conversations on a wider basis. Brilliant. So, James, what do you think? It sounds like you guys across the pond actually came up with the idea first and then we've just honed it and developed it and just perhaps taken it forward a little bit further and faster at the moment. (laughs) We made the name. We created the name and then you guys were like, all right, cool. And then you ran with it. But that's unusual. Normally the other way around. We normally come up with the cool ideas and, you know, like great games like cricket and soccer or well, it's football. You keep ruining the name, but but you then develop it and commercially. So um, that's a bit of a change this one. But what, what are your thoughts, James? Any thoughts, ideas you'd like to ask Jana before we wrap up this week's show? So while well, I listened to everything that she said, I, I got. I started to reflect that it's. And this might be a good thing for the tinfoil hat of the U.S., but more of the same. I almost felt like in the future I'll go to the ATM machine and pull out maybe a paper wallet of my digital pounds that becomes cash. The digital wallet or the paper wallet becomes cash. With that, that might make people feel better. Is it? So I think in the future we will see cash exist as well. I don't think like central bank digital currencies are necessarily going to replace cash because cash and its tangibility, you know, they fulfill a valuable function um, for many people. Um, right, and- but if you come to the U.S., the, 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 my crazy neighbors, or the, the rumor is we're going to get rid of cash, nobody wants you to use cash, hide your cash in a mattress, right? So you were talking about, you know, backing ATM access, you know, for like the pandemic and things like that. That's absolutely unheard of, you know, for the degenerates of the US. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you guys have your own unique social considerations is what I'm going to say there. Gosh, that's Um, That's very polite. (laughs) We like candy. (laughs) Um, I, uh. I mean, there, there's such a lot that one could say there. You know, uh, there, there, you hear stories about people who you know, had all their cash 
again, you know, stuffed in their mattress for like 20 years, and then they try and use it. And they discover that basically, you know, none of it can really be used anymore. um, Because it's all been, you know, replaced by newer issuances and stuff. I think in the UK, the Bank of England will still exchange like your old notes that are no longer in circulation for new notes if you turn up with them. Um, I don't know what the situation is in the US. Again, the, the, the US has its unique considerations. I think for many jurisdictions, there is a trend away from cash transactions, not necessarily cash holdings. Um, and so again, CBDC fulfills a, a, a role in continued public access to publicly issued money there. Um, and I'm sure some in the US might see value in it. There are a number of experiments going on with like, I think it's the um, Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and New York as well um, that are looking into this stuff. But it has its own probably specific considerations. I, I do think, however, that, you know, that whole argument about improved and modernized payments infrastructure, the, the strongest argument for, a, you know, a more developed economy is probably that of the United States, where a CBDC could actually bring a lot of benefits to more to more modernized payments infrastructure. Well, and Jana, it's interesting to see the biggest bank in America, JP Morgan, um, uh, uh, you know, rolling out the uh, JP coin in all sorts of different areas. And it's only last week we saw them actually um, doing uh, their first euro uh, denominated transaction with Siemens. So whilst the Fed may be not taking a sort of a, a, a forward seat, let's say, in terms of driving this adoption, we are beginning to see sort of other commercial entities um, grabbing this sort of, you know, by the nettle, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And there's some there's some super interesting stuff going on um, in the banking sector, looking at how um, these new forms of money can be used. Brilliant. OK, Jana. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on the show and explaining a little bit more um, about this topic. And I know perhaps some of you are thinking, well, God, this all how does it really affect me? This is all pretty dry and sound, you know, capital markets and bankers and all that jolly good stuff. But but ultimately, this is talking about what we do in terms of on a day to day basis, spending money. And, you know, it's it's a way that's going to give more choice, more freedom. Doesn't mean you necessarily got to use it. Um, but if it's cheaper and faster, then perhaps you might be tempted. But but Jana, if anyone wants to get hold of you, um, is the best way LinkedIn? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm the only one of me. So that, that's a pretty good way. There is only one of you, Jana. You know that. <laughs> we, 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 love, we love Jana. Even though I'm not meant to say that because I don't have a filter, evidently. I'm not quite sure what that means. I haven't had an oil filter for years, but that's a different story. But Jana, it says J-A-N-N-A-H, Patchy, C-H-A-Y. Yep. Fantastic. So if you'd like, and if you'd like to get a copy of Jana's article, then obviously just Norway, contact either James Tyler at Cyber.fm or myself, Johnny Fry. Um, and at uh, God, where am I? I'm at I'm at t- Team Blockchain. Forgot where I was for a second there. Um, or you know, you can you can get hold of us. Um, you know, on on LinkedIn, we're both we're all through us on LinkedIn. But Jana, thank you very much for coming on uh, the show, and hopefully we'll um, hear more from you perhaps later in the year as this topic develops. I'm sure it's got a lot further to run. Thank you very much for having me today, Johnny and James.
Thank you. And thanks. Thank you, James, and all the crew at Cyber FM. And we'll be back next week um, with another show um, on the airways, um, Digital Bytes with Cyber FM. Thank you.